to the Combat Morale Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Tom Thorpe. The Combat Morale Podcast explores what motivates people to fight or not fight in armed conflict. A quick disclaimer before we get to the action. The views expressed by any of the guests on the podcast are purely of a personal nature, do not represent the views or opinions of any organisation or government. With that disclaimer out of the way, it is season two. It is season two, episode 18. And on today's programme, I talk to author and historian Jane Gilliford Lowes about her interest and research into lack of moral fibre in RAF Bomber Command during the Second World War. Jane spoke to me from her home in County Durham in the northeast of England. Jane, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in LMF, Bomber Command, and motivation amongst RAF bomber crews during the Second World War? Hello, good morning. Yes, I am an author from County Durham and my focus is on non-fiction work and particularly the Second World War. It was while I was researching my second book, Above Us the Stars, which is the story of an RAF bomber command crew, that I became aware of the issue of lack of moral fibre and the impact of psychiatric strain on bomber crews. It was as I was researching the story, which is basically the the story of my uh, great uncle Jack Clyde's crew, he flew with 10 squadron at Bomber Command, um, that I began to sort of develop a a real interest in in this field. Part of my research involved looking at Jack's logbook. This is my most prized possession. Um, He was a wireless operator with 10 squadron Bomber Command, who at the age of just 20 flew a full tour of operations with 10 squadron between May of 1943 and March of 1944. So the logbook is very, very sparse in its detail. It summarises the operations and it mentions the the other crew members, etc. But there was... I always got the feeling there was more to this than met the eye. Jack, who I knew, never ever spoke about his experiences in Bomber Command after the war. He just wouldn't talk about it. And it was when he passed away and I inherited his his papers that I began to to really research his story. So initially, the logbook entries are very plain, matter-of-fact descriptions of raids, um, such as Wuppertal, Essen, Gelsenkirk, and throughout the early stages of of the Battle of the Royal valley and these give no hint really as to to Jack's state of mind however from the date of the raid on Hamburg on 24th of July 1943 which was the crew's ninth operation the entries in the logbook begin to sort of hint at a change in Jack his notes and descriptions of each rage of each raid sorry suggest a growing confidence an almost an air of flippancy and a cockiness which was totally at odds with what I knew about his personality. Jack was a very, very shy, very, very quiet gentleman. For example, he'd be using terminology such as wizard prang, typical RAF slang of the day, uh, which meant a, a good operation or a good sorting. The more I began to research the experiences of bomber crews throughout the war and the more veterans I interviewed, and I did interview a lot, I began to realise that there were three possible explanations for this apparent change in Jack's language and behaviour. First of all, it's conceivable that Jack was becoming more self-assured as he settled into his role and became familiar with what was required of him. He knew his trade inside out and there was a great bond with the other members of his crew. 
every member of the crew knew that the lives of his mates depended on his ability to do his own particular job. And the crew come to know each other like brothers within a very short space of time and functioned as one fighting unit. Secondly, there's no doubt that some men did indeed experience a feeling of elation and an adrenaline rush after the completion of a successful operation. Some men, a few, did love flying operationally. It was exhilarating and they became addicted to the danger. However, as far as Jack was concerned, I thought the third and most likely scenario was that this was simply bluff and bluster, a, young, a very young man's attempt to disguise what he and his crewmates were actually really feeling about the operations that they were carrying out. A sort of growing horror at the impact of their operations on the ground in Germany, coupled really with pure terror. Of the 19 crews that joined 10 Squadron on the same day as Jack and his crew the, in, in May 1943, 11 crews were already dead by the end of July. So the losses were absolutely enormous on this squadron at the time. So this is really where the point that, that I'm coming from, where I became really interested in issues of sort of the psychiatric reactions to the bombing campaign um, on the part of aircrew. So before we get into, into talking in detail about sort of the LMF diagnosis or, or label, could you give us a, a brief overview of some of the um, aspects of bomber, bomber Command, sort of operations that Jack was on and the sort of casualties that Bomber Command suffered during the conflict to give us a bit of, bit of background to uh, a lot of what we're going to talk about? Okay, so we need to sort of step back a bit and look at the reorganisation of the RAF, which took place in the late 1930s. So it was divided up into three commands, three specific different areas of operation with three different roles. So you have fighter command, um, your Spitfires and your Hurricanes, you know, your, your typical scene of your young men sitting around on airfields, reading the newspaper in deck chairs, waiting for the alarm to sound and then all hurtling off to their to their aircraft. Then you have a coastal command, um, which, which is protecting shipping routes and carrying out operations against enemy ships and submarines. Then you have bomber command, which is designed to basically take the battle to the enemy. And this was the whole basis of, of, of Britain's sort of air policy and air doctrine um, at the time in the late, late 1930s. There was the feeling and the understanding that famously the bomber would always get through and that was the way in which we would defeat the enemy by carrying out strategic bombing on enemy targets. So Bomber Command started recruiting um, and they had a very very high turnover of crewmen. Jack actually volunteered for Bomber Command, as did every young man who served with Bomber Command, they were all volunteers. So no one was actually conscripted directly into Bomber Command. You had to volunteer, mainly because the attrition rate was so high. So when we look at the statistics and the casualties, we have around 55,573 Bomber Command crewmen killed during the course of the war, which is a massive number. Um, 8,400 and odd wounded, and just under 10,000 uh, were shot down and captured as POWs. So in the time when Jack and his crew are undertaking their operations, which is sort of mid-1943 onwards into early 1944, the losses are huge. So the best way I can illustrate it is to sort of put it on percentage terms. So for every 100 
aircrew, Bomber Command aircrew at this time, who took part in operations, 55 would be killed. Three would be injured. 12 would end up as POWs. Two would be shot down and evade capture. And 27 survived their full tour. So that's just horrific, utterly horrendous. Jack and the crew at this time are taking place in um, the strategic bombing offensive. So you've got um, the Americans coming on board to bomb targets in Germany by day and the RAF uh, continuing their area bombing policy of bombing by night. They are concentrating on German industrial production. So they are targeting the aircraft factories, the uh, military armaments factories, that sort of thing, all focused in the Ruhr Valley. They're targeting the, the coal mining, the steel production, all concentrated in this particular area of the Ruhr Valley. Um, and then they are moving out towards um, towards Hamburg and to Cologne and all the big German centres of population and, and industry. And of course, these areas are extremely heavily defended. That is the issue. They, they call the nickname for the Royal Valley was, was Happy Valley, given an ironic nickname by the crews because it, it was so dangerous. One of the um, air crewmen that I interviewed, who was a pilot on, on Lancasters, told me that the air was so full of flak, anti-aircraft fire, you felt that you could step outside of the plane and just walk on it. The air, the air was just full of fragments of, of metal basing. And it was an absolutely terrifying experience because not only are you contending with anti-aircraft fire, you are watching other planes go down all around you. And then you also have the, the trauma of what you're actually doing and what you're seeing on the ground, the impact of your work, if you like, the impact of your actions when you are seeing entire cities completely ablaze. So it is an unimaginable experience for these. And I suppose, I can bring the microphone over, and I suppose it's, it's made even worse because A, you're at night, you have no fighter cover, you can't see other aircraft like the American Daylight Rays, you'd be in, in, in formations, so you, yeah. and you don't rely on your defensive firepower. Essentially, you're navigating alone and everything is so much more vivid at night because you can see, um, you know, where the pathfinders, these sort of squadrons would come and drop flares. So you can see where the fires are and you'd fly towards the fires. And so it was, a, it was you know, a terrifying environment in many ways. And you could see all, the, you know, it, it's just so much worse in a way than day daylight because it's just the unknown. And I suppose yes. that's what that's what gives it that sort of, uh, you know, the daylight raids that the Americans were doing. They, they had similar, I think, probably psychological strains. But it's just the, the horror of doing it at night and in the dark. Sounds yes. obvious. And what you have to bear in mind as well is that many of these crews had had very little um, nighttime training before um, undertaking um, operations um, with a squadron. For example, Jack and his crew, who they flew Halifaxes, they had only 16 hours night flying training in a Halifax prior to beginning their tour, which is absolutely nothing. That you is know? nothing. It's, it, it's nothing. It's hardly surprising that surprising that so many crews were shot down and lost on their first few operations. Once you got through the first five, um, it was considered that you had a much better chance of, of surviving your tour. But ultimately, it was all just purely down. So a lot, a lot of your 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 danger could be from yourselves and your lack of experience with crews, let alone what the Germans were putting up in their yeah. night fighters and, and flak positions. And how many, just sort of just for my information, how many um, operations or flights would there be on a standard tour? Um, for the RAF at this time, there would be 30. And for the Americans, I think it was eventually 25. 
Um, but the, those numbers did change, I think, slightly throughout the war. But the RAF was more or less 30 uh, th throughout the course of the war. Yeah. So we set the background. Now let's talk about this term lack of moral fibre or LMF. Now, what, what do we mean by that term? So, again, I need to, to step back a bit. Um, by 1941, um, the RAF and Bomber Command in particular was already suffering from a shortage of manpower. It took many months to train a new crew and increasing numbers of crews were needed both for operational reasons and because of the high number of combat deaths. Basically, men were being killed quicker than they could be replaced. As early as January 1941, psychological illnesses among aircrew were causing major concern. Just under 10,000 men were removed from flying duties between February 1942 and February 1945, though the actual number suffering from unreported psychological symptoms is likely to be much higher for reasons that I'll go into um, further, further on. So the Whittingham Committee was established in 1941 in February um, to investigate flying stress in aircrew and to gather data designed to regulate the length of operational tours. So at this point in time, there's no limit on the number of to a number of operations that you can fly. But it also informed policymaking regarding, regarding the handling of airmen who were displaying psychological symptoms. So the number of psych psychiatric casualties is beginning to grow at a time when there's already a huge number of operational casualties. So an executive administrative procedure was introduced, which was intended to reduce the numbers of aircrew who or basically felt that they, they couldn't continue to fly. It was frequently conflated with mental health issues and often regarded as a medical problem. But in fact, the lack of moral fibre policy was an administrative problem. It was not a medical diagnosis. It was an administrative procedure designed to weed out those men who were showing signs of psychiatric damage or psychiatric illness. So the lack of moral fibre the term first appears in the minutes of an RAF meeting on the 21st of March 1940, held to discuss a procedure for dealing with cases of flying personnel who will not face operational risks. And rules regarding the implementation of the procedure were introduced the following month. Then in September of that year, 1941, the Air Ministry published a famous document which came to be known as the LMF Memorandum which was specifically targeted at, and I quote, the members of air crews who forfeit the confidence of their commanding officers in their determination and reliability in the face of danger in the air, owing either to their conduct or their admission that they feel unable to face up to their duties. That's just horrifying, isn't it? It's just unbelievable. And this applied to all RAF commands, fighter, coastal and bomber, although much of the mythology, historiography and discussion relates to the impact of the policy on bomber command. And that's certainly been the focus of my studies. And this was implemented enthusiastically throughout um, the RAF. And it was you know, considered to be, well, a necessity. This is what we've got to do. We've got to reduce the numbers of these men who are going off with with mental health issues as a result of, of their fear, fears, basically. It, fear was viewed as a contagion which needed to be stamped out. And the way to do that was by discipline, by disciplining procedures. And that's basically what lack of moral, moral fibre policy was. And what sort of numbers are we talking about? How many air crew um, suffered from, I suppose, an administrative um, diagnosis, for want of a better word, of LMF during the war? 
I prefer to term it an administrative label rather than diagnosis because there is no medical diagnosis of LMF. The numbers vary, but it's not as many as people think. Uh, the actual number who are considered to have been labelled LMF and removed from their duties is somewhere in the region of about, what, perhaps 4,000 maximum. The, the figures vary hugely. Um, there are different records, different academics will come up with, with different figures. Somewhere between 2,000 and 4,000, I think, is probably the, uh, our best guess at the moment. You've got somewhere between 200, 400, 500 per year um, going through the LMF procedure. Yeah, I, I, I've been reflecting on this and I, I found it quite interesting that we have shell shock in the First World War, which is largely seen as a, uh, you know, a, a symptom to, to extreme fear. And then we have, you know, in the infantry, people have been screened out for psychological problems. And it seems that the Second World War, they're much more, quote, understanding of such issues. But this seems to be completely different from what has happened in, in other branches of the service. As far as I know, I'm also no expert in this, but it's just that sort of slight, what appears to be an odd difference. It is. It's, it's very, very different. And I think that is something to do with the the culture sort of behind the RAF and the development of air power generally, as opposed to what's happening on the ground or indeed even even in the Royal Navy, where psychiatric casualties were treated diff differently and they were treated very, very differently um, in the army as well. Um, so, yeah, it, it just seems to fly in the face of, of all reason almost. It, it just doesn't seem to be a logical, sensible policy. And it also, I feel, was, was counterproductive. The threat of, of being labelled LMF was how the policy actually operated in practice and why it was su well, so successful in reducing psychiatric, the numbers of recorded psychiatric casualties men were so frightened of being labeled lmf and it took on a whole sort of mythology all of its own that they would not come forward with their psychological symptoms and they would continue on flying until they some of them had complete mental breakdowns some of them went mad in the air plenty record recorded examples of that and one wonders to what extent air crews were actually endangered and indeed lost by the fact that these men felt forced to continue when they were clearly in no psychiatric state to do so. And if, if, you, if, if I was diagnosed, sorry, if I was labelled with LMF and it had been brought to attention my commanding officer, what would happen to me? What happened to men who, who had this sort of administrative label applied to them? Well, these men are considered to be cowards. And they're often treated incredibly harshly. There are examples, but very, very few examples of men being publicly humiliated, um, such as stripped from having their rank badges stripped from them in public on parade and removed from their squadrons and transferred to, transferred to menial ground duties, such as working in the kitchens. However, that was very, very rare that there was that sort of public humiliation, but it was that mythology which established it itself in the minds of the air crews and that was what they expected to happen to them even though that was in fact very very unlikely what would often happen was that men would be officers would be expected to resign commissioned non-commissioned officers officers would be demoted to the lower ranks they would be sent to um, 
administrative duties or to ground duties. Sometimes um, if symptoms were spotted, they would be sent off to what was called the aircrew refresher training units. These were basically disciplinary centers where psychological issues were treated like offenses. And after a few weeks, they would be either returned to operational duties if he'd mended his ways, set for ground crew duties or discharged altogether. From 1944, um, those men labelled with LMF could even be sent to work in the coal mines. They could be sent to be Bevan boys instead, or they could be even drafted into the army. But not every man who developed psychological symptoms was treated in this way. The handling of an individual's situation really depended upon the attitude of a squadron's commanding officer and its medical officer. Many men were dealt with sympathetically and were just quietly moved off to other duties or transferred, for example, to an instructor's role at an operational training unit. This is what happened to Jack's um, next door neighbour, uh, Jimmy, who uh, was a navigator with the RAF. He'd managed 13 operations when he just completely lost his nerve and had a complete mental breakdown because we later found out he'd been involved in a training accident where the aircraft had been involved in a crash landing and caught fire. So that's obviously going to have an impact. And he just couldn't continue. He wasn't labelled LMF. He was sort of taken off duties for a while and then given an instructor's position. So there was just no consistency. And this was the problem. But because of that, men didn't know how they were going to be treated. And they always feared the worst. They always thought that they were going to be treated extremely harshly if they displayed any psych psychological symptoms. Yes. So there's just no real consistency in the implementation of the policy which appears to make it significantly more of a motivator now you've touched on this it was a motivator. were there other motivators that kept bomber crews going and serving together or was lmf a really sort of i suppose a dominant one that sort of comes out in your research i don't think it, it was the dominant factor but it was a significant factor i think the dominant factor was that um sort of brotherhood of the crew if you like um you are keeping going for your mates because you know that you have to do your job and you have to do it well. And the survival of your crewmates depend on you. No man in the air, in the air crew has a more important job than the other. They're all equally important roles. And they just keep on going because they know that their, their mates, that their comrades depend on them in, in many circumstances. Jack's crew was interesting they were quite unusual for their time in that they did talk among themselves about their fears and their anxieties. This, this, is, quite, this is quite unusual. Um, I was fortunate enough to speak to one member um, of the crew, um, a lot surviving member, who was Bill Bradshaw, who was the tail gunner. And he explained to me that they would sort of get together um, in, in the barracks and in, in their rooms and just chat through and talk about how they felt. They actually lost uh, one of their crew members, their, their navigator, um, halfway through their, their tour, Roy Tan. Roy had gone up with a different crew one night because they were short and he'd been killed in quite horrific circumstances. The aircraft crash landed in fog on the way home and, uh, and exploded and poor Roy and the rest of the crew were, were burned to death. And the crew discussed this at length and they sort of went through their feelings and, and talked about things. But that seems, from what I can gather, to have been quite an unusual situation um, at the time. And Bill told me that 
they were they were quite open about their feelings and about the fact that they were frightened they didn't try to, to sort of hide it from each other which again is quite un unusual for the time and that there's one particular incident that bill told me about which i think says a lot about the state of mind of the crew and the things that they were having to cope with and this was just before a raid on berlin in early 1944, Bill had gone to knock on the door of the pilot, uh, Reg Pennicott, to tell him it was time to, to go and, and, and get kitted up. And when he opened the door, he saw Reg kneeling in prayer. And he sort of said, oh, praying for another safe return, Skipper. And he said, no, Bill, I'm praying for the German people. And that is, to me, that just absolutely blew my mind. But it it's sort of a perfect illustration of the fact that the burden that these crews took on, the mental burden of doing your duty, you know, carrying out these operations, trying to make a difference in the conduct of the war, but at the same time being completely aware of what the end result was on the ground and the effect that that was, that that was having, it was a horrendous burden for these young men. And to, trying to draw comparisons with other air forces, how did, uh, for instance, the US Army Air Force uh, treat members who had battle fatigue? I'm partly thinking of the great film Aces, Ace 12 Clock High, which comes out in the 1950s about B-17 crews. Is it Jimmy Stewart? It's a great film. And, sort of, it, yeah. and it covers the fear. And it's, 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 quite, it's quite revolutionary for post-war films. It does deal with some of these issues. But yeah. did you, I think did they, um, Bomber, Bomber Command... Um, issues similarly dealt with in Appointment in London starring Dirk Bogard, but that was very, very unusual for its time, um, certainly. But yeah, the, the US Air Force had a, a slightly more relaxed approach, I would think, to combat fatigue, as, as they termed it. They recognised that there was bound to be a mental toll on their crews, but again, there was no consistent policy. They didn't have anything equivalent to the RAF's lack of moral fibre policy. Any, men who, any man who was suffering from psychiatric problems or mental health problems or anxieties or whatever was encouraged to speak to his flight sergeant, sorry, his flight surgeon, who would provide some sort of reassurance and support. But the main aim was to keep them flying, obviously. Um, they did have these sort of rest homes called flak houses where crews could go for a a bit of R and R every now and again, which the RAF didn't have. But again, that's I think to do with cultural reasons. RAF bomber command crews had very very regular leave. They had one week off in about every six or seven or so, so they would go home for a week's leave. And for that one week, they would try to forget about everything that was happened, and then you know re return to normal, see their families whatever but then at the end of that week they would then have to go back and face it all again and in some ways I think that it must have become increasingly difficult for them to, to actually be able to do that so there was a certainly a, a contrast in, in the way that the, the US Army Air Force and, and Bomber Command dealt with these issues. I'm just thinking in, in relation to the US Army Air Force Catch-22 and Joseph Heller's yeah. book and sort of Catch-22 that you, you can't fly a mission if you're mad, but you'd be mad. Um, not being mad is a natural symptom to fear or something along those lines. Yes, it, that, keep... that's it perfectly. Yeah. 
and it keeps the Yuseri and the character flying as, as, as the colonel ups the missions they've got to complete. So just, just touching on what you just mentioned about sort of the, the cultural notion, did LMF or this idea of LMF, did it come from sort of the ethos, or I suppose, of the pre-war Second World War society? I'm thinking about stiff upper lip that we talk about in the 1950s and my, my parents talk about and sort of notions of masculinity, duty and stoicism. Or was it really, uh, so I suppose, a bureaucratic imperative for the Air Force to keep the, the crews flying? I think it's a combination of, of both, to be honest, but certainly that that cultural concept of morale and the stipple for lip and, you know, do be seen to be doing your bit absolutely underpins um, the whole policy. The thing is, and by sort of the end of the Second World War, psychiatrists were well aware of the cumulative effects of stress. Um, and they were identifying the three stages as inexperience, experience, and then stress or, or burnout in air crews. But in the interwar years the theory developed that some men had an underlying weakness of character and a predisposition to combat stress and this theory began to take hold it's almost like we're going backwards in terms of progress here rather than forwards this theory theory began to take hold and from it developed the idea that psychological reaction to combat situations in a particular aerial combat was not due to illness caused by exposure to external stressful situations, but rather to a chap simply not being up to it or in being a coward, which just, it's just bizarre. By 1939, official RAF policy is beginning to reflect these beliefs and character defects were emphasised as being the underlying cause in cases of mental breakdown. The idea was of the, the neurotic serviceman who was basically a, a weakling and, and unfit to, to carry out his duties, a personality type who would be predisposed to break down during the, the strain of wartime. So unlike a physical disability, psychological complaints were seen as a result of a man's weakness and inability to control his own fears. And it was considered that officers would be less prone to this because of their good upbringing, public school, all that kind of thing, whereas those of lower ranks, by virtue of their genes and upbringing, according to one squadron leader, squadron leader Reed, who was instrumental in the implementation of the policy, the lower ranks were more likely to suffer mental breakdown, were unfit to be aircrew, and should be treated without sympathy. This whole kind of thing just absolutely blows my mind, because it's just... It, it, it makes no practical sense to me at all. And as a result of that, um, non-commissioned officers were much more likely to be labelled LMF than, than officers. So we then, I think, also have to look at the unique nature of air warfare when we come to sort of put this policy into its, its wider context. So what set RAF aircrew who suffered psychological symptoms apart from other servicemen who were tra traumatised or frightened civilians who were similarly affected? And research has been done, and certainly some academics, a chap called Martin, who wrote some fantastic uh, pieces of, about um, aircrew and about the, the concept of the flyer, Discussions within the RAF about how to overcome fear reflected the specific dynamics of air warfare, and in particular, in his view, the required balance between individualism and teamwork, or between physical strength 
and temperament. Richard Overy, whose work on Bummer Command is absolutely superb, observed that the permanent dangers to which aircrew were exposed and the sheer mental and physical demands of combat, at times, for example, sometimes surrounded by dead or dying companions in your aircraft with jammed guns or engines knocked out or your aircraft is on fire, created temporary nightmare world, he calls it, in which the one hope was that this particular crewman's aircraft and his crew wouldn't be next. So you've got this constant fear and the, the constant principal cause of anxiety, which was identified at the time as being an instinctive fear of death, maiming, burn, burning or capture. And you have this conflict. So you have an airman displaying signs of anxiety who was frequently reacting to a conflict, according to RAF psychiatrist, squadron leader David Stafford Clark, a conflict between his desire to do his duty and thereby maintain self-respect and his instinct for self-preservation. So it's just this horrendous maelstrom of trauma and psychiatric damage, fear, and the inability to be able to express those feelings and to admit to them because you knew that if you did, you would be accused of being a coward and unworthy of your role as an aircrew. And do we know if there was any sort of follow-up studies after the Second World War looking at these sort of mental health and health outcomes for flying crew? I mean, it's just a speculative question. There's been lots of research done, but I don't think there's been anything in particular, any studies of what happened to those men who were, who were labelled LMF after the war. But also it would be difficult to carry out those studies in the immediate post-war because you have this continuing fear of ex-air crew now of admitting that they'd suffered from mental health problems people you know people still didn't want to admit to it for years after the war and it's for that reason the the lmf policy just wasn't talked about it was just you know brushed under the carpet really probably until the the 1980s yes you're right i mean all the all the 1950s war films that we grew up with um you know have all those sort of wonderful manly virtues of stoicism duty and doing your bit and shortening the war as they always say um but yeah i can see that so jane finally where can people learn more about your work and get your book okay um i have lots of articles on various aspects of of world war ii on my website which is at justcuriousjane.com Um, My second book, Above Us the Stars, 10 Squadron Bomber Command, is available from my website, but also from Amazon and and most of the bookshops as well. Jane, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.